if we're training a generation and we're trying to help them set with people who are twice, three times their senior, we need to instill confidence. We need to develop mentorship and we have to have consistent messaging across the firm that they can be a part of because it attaches them to our strengths as well. Today on Bridging the Gap, we welcome Nathan Harness, a former Georgia Bulldog national champion, but he's now director of financial planning over at Texas A&M University. And we're not going to judge him on that because he's a bulldog at heart. He manages the financial planning program and teaches courses in investments, retirement planning, and comprehensive financial planning. And this conversation was amazing with Nathan. He explains to us the importance of increasing the speed of trust with this next generation that's entering a financial firm. And we talk about why sales is so important to teach these younger advisors and seeing the value in the upcoming generation of advisors and how they grew up and what they know and what they learn. Nathan gives us his insight on what he believes this new breed of advisors will bring to the table in the financial industry. And we dive into taking inventory of the skills that the millennial and Gen X and Gen Z portrays and how they absorb change more rapidly than their predecessors. This is a conversation that's incredible. It it could have gone on for hours, but it looks at the future of our industry, the future of financial planning, something that Nathan is having a lot of impact on over there at Texas A&M. So let's get into this conversation with Nathan Harness. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Nathan Harness, welcome to Bridging the Gap. Thanks so much for joining us. How's everything going over at Texas A&M these days? Wonderful, Matt. Thanks for having me. Everything's going rapidly, growing rapidly. We're an institution with about 65, 70,000 students, so there's no slowing down at Texas A&M. I love that. I love that. And you know, we were just talking before we came on uh, recording, and you know, it's interesting to see that you're a, you're a Georgia Bulldog as well. That's right. A little bit of my career started out in Athens, Georgia, working with a fantastic financial planning program there at the University of Georgia. So always have a little piece of my heart that resides in Georgia with a love for not only the people, but also clearly the athletics and the just incredible financial planning program that's right there in your backyard. I love it. So you're so Georgia took you out to Texas A&M, and so you're you're heading up the whole financial planning program at Texas A&M. Which I, I know that I see Texas A&M, you know, at the CF around CFP and FPA and a lot of the the organizations and the groups and the conferences that we go to. So tell us a little bit about your role that you play at Texas A&M, heading up the financial planning organization. Yeah, Matt, my start in the industry is a little bit unique in that I came in a little over 20 years ago on the broker-dealer side, enjoyed a career. Entry points into the industry were quite different 20 years ago. Now there's multi-pathways, as I'm sure you've talked to many about, but that's evolved rapidly to where students today engage and enter the market in very different ways than they did 20 years ago. As my career progressed, I have a sort of duplicity uh, of excitement, one not only for engagement of people, but also for the research realm and really helping our industry at large have some normative practice, not only in how we practice financial planning, but also how we pipeline, how we begin to develop consistency in the labor force that's coming into financial planning. So my role is unique as a program director where I have a bit of an administrative side. My primary role at Texas A&M though, frankly, if it was getting down, boiling it down to what is it, it's bringing the industry 
and students together so that we can grow a profession together. That has a lot of components to it, but that's, that's, I see that as our primary. We actually have a mission statement here and it's in to empower future leaders and values-based holistic financial planning. Everything drives towards that. How can we execute and do that well? And, and so to that point, right, because it is the future of the industry that you're kind of grooming up and trying to connect. What is the challenge that you have with that, right? What is the challenge of connecting the future with the industry and whether it comes from people buying into it on the student side or people buying into it on the industry side? What, what do you see as the challenges there? Some of them are the same as the industry at large. I'll give you a, one that's very similar scale. Financial planners have to operate at scale. I too have to operate at scale. One of the scale issues that I have is connecting industry to students. I had a lunch meeting right before I came in to communicate. I have this call here with you where a firm was asking me, how do I connect to your students in a consistent way to where my brand is known, where my value prop is known and that students know who I am. So you have to develop these processes to make those connections happen. Some of our other just great issues that we have. I call it push and pull demand into the industry. You're pulling people towards you. We're trying to push them out towards you. So you've got this push pull demand that isn't always working together just simply because again, our industry is evolving where the industry itself might not know that, you know, there's 150 different universities out there plus almost 200 now teaching financial planning. And that's where a labor pool might be a wonderful place for us to start when we're bringing in associates or new advisors into practice. The other piece that I have in that element of the demand or supply that I have a part of is helping freshmen understand that this is a career for them. Right. You look out, you go to you go to FPA, NAPFA, really any of the industry conferences, move XYPN off to the side, maybe. But many of the industry conferences and you look around, it doesn't look like 22, 23, 24 year olds. So the idea of coming into our industry can seem overwhelming, scary, maybe uh, when you're a young adult and you're talking to a guidance counselor or even some senior financial planners and they tell you, yeah, success rate in our industry is 5%. You're going to come have to have to come in and can you bring in five to ten million dollars your first year so that you are going to be able to be successful in our business those are scary things for young adults to hear that think this business is not the right fit for them and then we have the evil s word in the industry sales right the side i, I tell students everybody's in sales if you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you are in sales. And some of you have to be pretty good at it, like me, to be able to land the incredible spouse that you have. So a lot of the same things that you're probably seeing in training the next generation, there's some disconnects that we are going to overcome when we gain more momentum, when we gain more scale, and we gain, I think, continuity out there in practice today, where practices see the incredible opportunity of bringing the next generation into a practice to create succession continuity and also to improve their value prop. I think there's some thought out there that the next generation cannot improve value prop, and I think it's a wrong one. You know, you bring up a lot of good points. And one of them I just want to, I want to align with you on is that I had to be a really good salesperson to get my spouse as well. So I just want to, I want to say that I'm in that boat with you. Okay. And you know, she may, she may feel that she got sold a bill of goods, but I, I don't know about that. That's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother podcast episode. But you know, you, you talk about, you know, operationalizing, scaling it, 
you know, right now in the industry, we have a ton of difficulty finding good talent, right? I mean, it's hard to find talent. It's hard to train talent. You know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, when you hire young for a lot of firms, because they're just trying to plug holes because they got so much holes to fill right now that it just takes time to train them and, and people don't have time to train them. And so how, how are we, how are we able to overcome that? Right. Thinking about if I'm sitting in the advisor seat, it, how do I help to overcome that to, to where, you know, the younger generation does make sense for me to, you know, to hire and help me plug those holes? Like, what do I need to do from an advisory standpoint? I think part of it is to be proactive rather than reactive. We oftentimes look at our labor pool and we just respond and say, we need somebody right now, rather than saying, hey, we need somebody a year and a half from now. And it, it's it's difficult, you know, when you're looking at revenue, when you're looking at number of clients, when you lose somebody in the middle of the year, it's hard to match supply and demand on that labor front. However, to think in terms of being proactive in how you bring labor into your firm. Again, meeting I just had earlier today was talking about an internship program. You really wanna see the value of the next generation and do it at a low cost entry point. I think an internship program makes a lot of sense. This is how neighboring professions like accounting, legal profession, uh, law, they, they look at residency and they look at um, internships as a pathway to success into the industry. The next piece is maybe considering the alternative aspects that the next generation can bring from a value proposition to your firm. I think we oftentimes want to think that the pathway to growth is the exact same pathway that we came down. And there is some truth to that. And we have a close relationship to that. It's almost like the past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Well, but it also is at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think when we think about how we grew a firm, we want to push everybody down that exact same pathway where maybe a way to even diversify the talent that we have inside of a firm is think in terms of the next generation could come in and one of the aspects that they might be involved in is looking through fintech or tech deck, looking through things that maybe they have a different perspective on rather than having everybody grow into a firm the exact same way. You, you know, you, you nail it. You nail a point spot on, right? I mean, we are an industry where, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? You know, why rock the boat? If we grew this way, why would we want to change it? And this in this generation that's coming in is is a it's a different generation, but every generation is, right? The the founders of these firms, right? G1 I call them, were a different industry, different generation than the generation before them. They just don't remember it because not not a knock on them. It was just a long time ago, right? I mean, like we don't we and we tend to forget things that are irrelevant, and we focus on just what the time is at that point. And and with that said, it's hard for industries and companies to overcome that. So my question though is is that this generation is different, and you you deal with this generation a lot, and it's somewhat our it's a little bit younger, I guess, than our generation. But from your interactions with them, speaking to these advisors, what is the future of wealth management and financial planning, right? What is the, what are they going to bring? Because they've gone through, you know, the tech bus, maybe not, they actually haven't. They've gone through the great recession. They've gone through a pandemic. They may be more conservative. I mean, what is your perspective and your feel of the future relative to what we had? Yeah. 
I think we, as you said, our industry has evolved rapidly. We've got a generation that has experienced a lot of change. Is that change different than the generation, my generation that experienced at least during my college years or into the beginning of my work career, 9-11? So we've, we've all gone through these massive events that shake us up. And our response to that, I think, is almost like working out. It's the things that tear and stretches our muscles to make them bigger and stronger. So you've got a generation that's faced a lot in a different way than generations prior. What are the skills then? That How could we take inventory of what they do bring to the table? I think one thing that the next generation comes with that's a little different than my generation and the generation predating me is how they absorb change rapidly. Mm. I'm at an age now where I don't absorb change as rapidly as I have in the past. And I'm also of a generation that didn't have to. Industry wasn't evolving as rapidly at that time. The way that we did business is always changing, but not as quickly as what you're seeing today to meet the needs of our customer. I think you bring a generation in that has seen change, lots of it, and they absorb and can navigate the complexities of change. So to help you do that, to be your front lines, to help you as a firm think through how do we move to working with clients in a scalable online way that maintains the integrity of relationship? How do we do that? You may have some great ideas, but it might be a value to um, begin to work with the next generation. Another bridge that I think that the next generation can bring to a practice is We're all thinking about continuity, not only for ourselves, but also for the legacy planning for our current clients. If you've got a gen, let's use the same terms, gen one, gen two, whether it be an owner, whether it be a matriarch, patriarch of a family, there's a transference of wealth that's occurring. And that transference of wealth, do you, research shows you don't have a relationship with our kids, most likely. Mm -hmm. Not a good one, not a sticky relationship. So as you've got this transference of wealth that's coming, And we know that somewhere in the ballpark of 50 to 60 trillion dollars with a T, a massive amount of money is on the move. How do we look at that as an opportunity, not a loss? I believe that we can engage the next generation in a couple of ways. One, so that we form multi-generational relationships. Two, so that we help with legacy planning that is not simply a top-down approach. I think sometimes when we think of legacy planning, it's what does matriarch patriarch want? And let's not engage the kids at all. We'll tell them what they want to be, or we'll tell them what their legacy is going to be. Instead, bring those layers of generations together to create an incredible tasting sandwich that isn't just bread so that we can engage those generations. I think your younger planners or your newer planners that, you know, have a little seasoning to them as well can come in and really help with those discussions in those conversations together with you as a planner. And then I think just from a practice standpoint, right? I was talking, it's been a long time ago now, but I had a call with Mark Diversion. I was talking to Mark and somebody else was on the line. He's led out in so many wonderful, wonderful ways. But I was on the phone with him and there was another person on the line and it was, he called it his reverse mentor. And I said, I had not heard that word before at that time. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, this is a new employee inside the firm who we greatly value, who is teaching me new things every day because she's on the front lines and she sees the world from a different place. And I thought, what a place of humility to think in terms of somebody who comes in that may not have the skill sets that you have, but they have different ones. 
And those skill sets are valuable because of the vantage point, the perspective, the position that they're in. To be able to hear that from your new employees provides, I believe, not only an understanding of different things happening in your practice, but it creates, and I'll stop here after this, a reverb effect. I've seen it so many times. We bring a planner to campus and they come and they talk about a sale that they had made or a client that they had brought in or a life change that happened inside their firm and they get students excited, but a reverb happens because they engage one of the, the, the most tenable, one of the, the, the strongest pieces of who we are as a person. And that's remembering the nostalgia of the beginning. And it takes them back to when the excitement of how they started their firm and created it. And it creates an even greater passion because of working with that next generation. Yeah, there is so much gold in that that answer because I mean I think that the idea of having them be the front line, their ability to absorb and adapt to change quicker because there has been so much change. I mean, you think just from a technological standpoint, right? Every day te- with technological innovation, things are changing in their lives faster than ever before. It's exponential change. And so they've just been they've they've never known anything different. And so everybody looks at the technology as being a an impediment or a, or a, a, a con to this generation, but you're turning that and saying it's actually a pro because it's allowed them to understand how to change, how to evolve, how to learn on their own, right? Somewhat, and have to how to have access to tools to go get the information which generations before them never had. And then you you talk about you know like with the wealth transfer and how to bring everybody together, right? I think that that is such a key po- component because the wealth transfer is something that is a as a multi-decade thing, right? And you're going to have, I always say, it's not just the transfer of money. It's a transfer of now one firm who has a million dollar or a $3 million client is going to turn into three $1 million clients. So it's going to be the same revenue, but triple the number of clients for that same revenue, which is you better become scalable. You better become efficient. You better figure out how to handle them. But you know what that takes for people to have that risk, to have them be the front line and to bring them into conversations early on is it takes trust, right? It takes risk taking, which is what this industry was all built around, right? We are a risk averse industry, but you have to think about the risk. And so it has to be, you have to be, have some trust in these people. And, and a lot of advisors are so now going to where we are now, we're so risk averse. How are you helping advisors become okay with it because they're like, I would never put a, I'm not saying me. They're like, I would never put a 23 year old in front of my $3 million client. That, are you crazy? Like I would never do that. And then how do you help them see that they should do that? Yeah. It's not an easy sell oftentimes to help people understand that there's a speed to trust. Trust takes time. And what we're trying to do with this next generation and honestly, what every firm's trying to do with every single client is to increase that speed to trust even faster. How do we pick that up? How do we speed that up? So how do we do it with the next generation that comes into our firms? What do we do with those individuals? I think that the next generation coming through financial planning firm or programs like ours are highly educated. I just think about my entry point. Whenever I came in, it was pass this test, series license. If you can get through that, you are highly qualified to sell financial products. What our students are coming through and what many of them in large and new developing financial planning programs across the country blows my mind. I mean, they are engaging Morningstar Advisor Workstation, and I'm just going to quote off some technology, but there's there's lots of layers below that. Morningstar, the Money Guy Pro, eMoney, 
many of the risk tolerance assessment vehicle, things that I couldn't have imagined having to solve complex financial problems. So you've got a, a generation that's coming in that also has standardized testing with the CFP exam and a multitude of EAs, whatever you want to put in front of your name. They have a pretty good level of education coming in more than I ever did whenever I begin to engage clients. It's the EQ side that's difficult. And I think that's what we're scared of. I don't know that we're necessarily scared of technical proficiency of this generation coming in because it's, it's better than whenever I came in. It may not be better than the generation that's out there, but it's better when I, than whenever I came in. It's the EQ side. And so what I encourage firms to do is have a pathway to grow that EQ, to enhance it, to mentor it. So that might look like a new entrant coming into my firm and me beginning to not just expect that they're going to have 50 relationships this year that they're going to bring in. Instead, what are the relationships that we can manage together? Mentorship's a two-way street. How can they mentor me? But how can I mentor them to grow the EQ side so that I can show my current clients and at least a layer of those clients that I have a young adult that's now inside this firm that has the tenacity and they have the proficiency to engage at a very high level. Now what you're doing with that young adult is you're building confidence. So you've got to build your confidence in them, and then they have to build their confidence in your process. Then they have to be able to ride for the brand, right? Mm -hmm. One of the interrogation processes I do when I go to firms is I'll ask the leader of the firm. I'll just start out and say, what's your why? You know, What do you love about working here and what what would you say is the mission if you're explaining it to a client in very basic terms what would you say the the mission of this firm or the value prop is and they'll tell me whatever it is i'll go in the office next door and the one next door to that and i'll go down the food chain and ask everybody what's amazing to me is how different it is from person to person and you would expect differences but if the if there's messaging inconsistency that's that large how do we create circles of influence how do we give our clients a, a value proposition that's easily retold so that they could go tell it to somebody else? If we can't do that well, then we don't have any consistency inside the firm. And young adults then struggle to say, what's my value to this firm? How am I creating value here? If they can't do that well, what's going to anchor them long term to the firm together with you. So I kind of took a sidebar there, but I think it comes back full circle. If we're training a generation and we're trying to help them set with people who are twice, three times their senior, we need to give, we need to instill confidence. We need to develop mentorship and we have to have consistent messaging across the firm that they can be a part of because it attaches them to our strengths as well. You know, the EQ side is so spot on, I think. I think that, the, that that's something that, you know, I think that this generation, the younger generation, I'm a huge proponent, by the way, that that people need to adopt the millennial generation into their firm from a technology standpoint, from a view standpoint, from a, you know, just from a wealth transfer standpoint. But this generation, the EQ side, I think is what's drastically different because that comes to one of the cons of technology. They haven't had to have human-to-human -human conversations. A lot of it's on text messaging. And I always say that this generation, and it's not a shot at them. I just want to be, I want to preface it. It's not a shot. Is that they are amazing text messengers, right? I love having conversations with them via text messages. They're great. But then when you get them in person, it's like, such a such like a downer right it's like it's like i had such a high for them because we had these great text messaging conversations and then you you get in person it's like blah and it's because they didn't have to have those conversations when they were growing up and so you know my question is then for the universities right that are doing this because it, it takes training and we train book smarts in universities how 
is there a path? Is there a way that we can instill and train on EQ inside of the university life? It's difficult because it takes reps. Most training does take real reps. You can talk about theory all day long. And I think sometimes universities hang around in theory a little too long before they move into practice. I think understanding the theoretical implications are important, but at the end of the day, we've got to do it. We've got to put it into play. How do we do that? I'll tell you some things that we're doing. And to be honest, my contact information will be out here. You can look my name up. Fortunately, there's only three Nathan Harnesses on the internet. So I got a unique name. It's helped me out. So <laughs> look me up, reach out to me. If you've got a good idea, we definitely don't have the market cornered on good ideas. One of the things that we're doing is we have what's called our ambassador program here at AM. And in our ambassador program, we've engaged a financial planner who is retired now, who wrote a book called The Mentor. And in that book, he has keys to professional success. Now, are these financial planning topics? No, but do they directly relate to the profession of financial planning? Absolutely, they do. We're training these students with many cases, engagements. We're trying to send them out into not only firms, but relationships across campus where they have to learn to introduce themselves in a way that they're not easily forgettable how to be in a big setting and somebody corners you in a conversation, but you're trying to meet as many people as possible. How do you in a very polite way in that conversation and move on to the next one? These little nuanced things that make a big difference in how we go about forming relationships, strengthening relationships and knowing ourselves. Cause I think there's a lot of young adults out there. That's what they're on exploration trying mode, trying to figure out who am I? If you don't know who you are, it's really difficult to engage well others. So we are doing that really not in the, we, we do our best to in, put it in cases into the classroom, but we're trying to do that with direct engagement through outside programs. Can we use your help industry? Yes. We need more reps. We want to take them to your office. We want to take them to national conferences where they're hearing high level speakers. There's just, there's things that make it difficult for us to do that. We need your help. Not just yeah. Texas A&M, every university across the country. Help us reduce the, the experience curve when they're coming in by pushing it backwards here into the university to the best of our ability. That's so true. And, you know, like you bring up that point about they don't know who they are, right? Self-awareness is such a key thing, but that just, that does some, that's one of those things that comes with time. And it's also, you know, the reps idea is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about virtual reality and how I think it can provide those reps and those conversations and those scenarios that are hard to play out. And, and to your point, I think that, you know, the industry is changing from like, what have you, how many people have you sold me on, et cetera. But I, I do think that there's an opportunity inside the universities to put more of these individuals through different sales scenarios and sales experiences, because it's not to necessarily train them on how to be a salesman or woman, but it's more just be when you, when you're in sales, you have to understand EQ and you have to understand pushback and how to handle it. And you, you learn a lot about yourself. And so, although it's not a sales role, even though it is right, because it, 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 there's a little bit of sales, but it's growing and it's different than that today. The sales aspect, teaches a lot about them. And so like, I think that there's an opportunity there as well, because you can like, just have them go sell a widget and get feedback and have to go and like stand out on the, on the lawn in the middle of the university and try to sell something and get people in. You learn a ton right from there. And I think that we're all hesitant on that because of sales got such a bad stigma, but it's just that it teaches you so much about you and, and, and EQ. 
Well, there's so much fear of rejection, right? At the end of the day, there's a, a massive fear of rejection. So we've got to think of ways to help people see a need that's there. I think for a lot of people, even in financial planning, the value prop financial planning, a lot of people don't see that they actually have a need until they're so deep in that the need is so great that the pain point's large enough that I say, I need to get somebody else to help me here. Mm -hmm. The inflection point probably needs to come before that, where people realize that there's a need. And it's the same with helping young adults understand how to convey value and help people come up with solutions. They have to be able to communicate to another person well. So we've got, you know, like I said, ambassadors, but we, we also have a sales program here. It's, we, we try to get reps in theoretical cases. You talked a little bit about um, building out this artificial intelligence engagement. We're looking at that um, together with another program here. Even that's difficult to create decision trees to where the alternative, you know, the, the person that you're selling goes into this binary left and right because sales is more organic than that. It's mm -hmm. not just a yes and no. It's normally somewhere in between those two when you're trying to communicate and help uncover a problem with another person where it's maybe not even a binary left or right. It's to say nothing. Just wait. Don't say anything. Now, as I'm, I, I, when I see students sometimes in this environment, I want to just grab them and go, don't talk, don't talk. Now's the time that you say nothing. Just wait. And they, I, I mean, I've been there. It's a difficult thing to understand when that moment is. And the way that you know it is through reps. So they're, I think allowing them in an, all the way down to an internship, all the way up to the entry points in your firm, get them in as many client meetings as possible. Even if they're just sitting there taking notes, putting stuff right into your CRM, that is huge for them. Yeah, I agree. And uh, gosh, I mean, this is such an intriguing conversation because it's the bridge between where we are as an industry and where we're going. And y'all, you are at the kind of the base of that and the forefront of that. You know, I want to switch gears just for a second before we, we we wrap up and let you go and continue to you know build the future of our industry for us and help us with that is you mentioned in one of your writings recently about the normative standards. It was part of an article I, I, I thought it was so just intriguing about how our industry, you know, we don't really have them. It doesn't exist within financial planners. Can you just give a background on what normative standards are and examples of them and why, you know, you think it's, it's, it needs to be in financial planners or it doesn't need to be, but the challenge that it provides. What turned me on to this is a teaching capstone course. We were talking about how to train students. We put a real financial plan case out there for his students and it's pretty comprehensive it's got a trust in it it's got wills it's got everything financial statements and they have to solve this financial planning program they communicate back and forth with the client i represent the client every student also has a mentor it's a requirement they have to work with somebody who's a cfp that's been in the industry for three years they choose who that person is so they pick them up all over the country what was fascinating for me because most financial planners wouldn't see this they saw the case specifically and they don't see the differences of opinion i see 70 students come in with 70 different solutions to a financial planning problem which you would expect to some extent if you send a client out to visit a doctor here and a doctor in alaska the way that they ultimately come up with a solution might be slightly different however the way that they diagnose the problem will look very similar from one medical practice to another. There's going to be differences, but they're going to be very close. Our industry, as I was noticing and setting back over semesters and years of watching this, doesn't have any of that diagnosis consistency. 
thus the development of a normative standard of how do we approach this specific problem even at the macro level for a client what do we do what's best practices look like what are our heuristics or rules of thumb when i approach this problem or this problem what that allows us to do it's even painting everybody looks at painting and just thinks that uh, somebody just threw a bunch of paint up on a canvas but the reality is there's a mathematical central underlay most of the time where we say this is the beginning of what painting looks like the organic intricacy of making mine different than someone else's happens more at the tails of the distribution than it does at the center our industry i believe and part of it is because it's an amalgamation of people coming out of so many different places I have a history degree. I have a, a poli-sci degree. I have a degree in financial planning. We come from so many different directions, which is great, leads to innovation. At the same time, it leads also to an inconsistent client experience from firm to firm to firm. So one of the things that I talk about in the development of normative practices is how do we get to a place where there is at least some core strategy where at least the diagnosis of financial problem begins to look similar. Right now, we've become pretty software dependent for that being the solution for us. Software, to some extent, guides the way that we come up with solutions for clients in given scenarios of uh, client problems that they might face. My question would be, where do those solutions come from? Where do software companies come up with those solutions? And when you backtrack, it's not very many people. So at the end of the day, the solutions for our clients come from a very small number of people. And it just got me thinking about what if we, again, take artificial intelligence and pull that into this problem and say, why don't we pull financial planners consistently and say, what is it that you're doing? And then go backwards to then what would be the normative standard? What are planners across the country doing on a case-by-case -case, uh, in each one of these scenarios and how do we say this is what the normative practice of a planner maybe not the best outcome for a client but at least the normative practice of a planner what does it look like yeah, so you know you, you talk about the softwares and how the softwares tell us you know the outcomes you know the challenge that i always have and you think about just like monte carlo analysis and all that type of stuff and you know i know you're digging into like the planning right someone comes in with this situation and how do we go about diagnosing it to give them a a, a reasonable outcome or, or output of what they need to do is the challenge and i i talk to many people about this is the challenge because everything is built on people being rational and the thing is, is that people aren't rational, but I guess, you know, even if you take a standard of, you know, a case study, that is a, that's like, there's a, it's a controlled environment. So it should have very similar, but the, the industry, and I, I can just hear a lot of advisors that are listening to this, like, gosh, everybody's situation is different. Like there's no way to have the same standard of it. I mean, is, is there, is it even possible to get to a normative standard in, in this space? Because it would have to be built on some sort of rational being from that standpoint, maybe not with artificial intelligence, but people just, we, as we know from psychology aren't rational. So is it even possible? You think the same arguments been made to the medical profession. Mm -hmm. Every case that comes in is vastly different from one client to the next. And many of them are coming in, hopped up on drugs. I mean, I just talked to my ER doc friend the other day. He is not seeing rational people. When you get your finger cut off, you are no longer rational. I promise <laughs> our clients are much more rational than their clients and yet they've come up with a solution to approach a problem in a consistent way. The end result might be a little different from 
firm to firm or doctor to doctor, but the diagnosis and the way in which we approach a problem can have at least some amount of consistency, which allows us as a profession at large to produce not only something that's more consistent, but even with new entrants coming into our business to have a approach, I don't want to use this word standardized because then we, we move to a place where we say, ah, we can't individually meet the needs of a client. Instead, having a basis for the foundations of how we operate and then we deviate from there. You don't want too much creativity. I don't want a pilot that I hop on a flight with that's creative. I don't want to have a pilot that's like, look how creative I can be on my landings. I want consistency on the way that they land every single time that they come in for a landing. However, when they're up in the air, there's going to be differences from pilot to pilot. I think the same with us. It's not an autopilot system. However, there is some amount of flight plan that's going to have a consistency from person to person, case to case, client to client. How do we find synergy among planners? How do we share even best practices in a way in which my unique strategy is not my exclusive value prop compared to another financial planner? It's almost like, I mean, as I listen to that, it's more of like, you know, it's the inconsistency of inputs that go into making the decision, right? Everybody just looks at different pieces of information. There's not even a consistency of, you know, this is how I analyze it. Some people just analyze it by their gut. Some analyze it by just looking at one piece of information. And if you can have at least the same inputs that go into making a decision, then you at least have a standard to to base off of that. Then you can show your creativity off of that sense of it from there. From there. Inputs are important. That's I, I, I like that you said that. And I think uh, I won't go into another channel. I'll just instead maybe feed it for another uh, person that you interview down the road. To me, that is the future of financial planning as well. The future of financial planning will engage a new set of inputs that we're not even capturing at this point in time. We have the largest human behavior lab in the country here at Texas A&M where we're looking at things like eye dilation. We're looking at real-time data instead of looking at how much did you spend two months ago or last year? What's going on with you right now? And not what you say what's going on. How do I measure aspects that are going on underneath the skin? I think that in part is where financial planning will be. Hopefully in my within my generation, we'll see some advancement in those places. And I'm seeing it in the research world occurring now. I mean, I'm 100% aligned with you there, right? You think about just as simple as sentiment, right? Sentiment in the emails that they're sending to us, right? You can make decisions on that on how do you react? Do you call them instead of email them? Do you need to hold their hand or they're about to sell out of everything, right? Just those types of inputs. I do agree that like all these inputs that and how we get that at those inputs, the access to those inputs that we are currently getting. So you take the current inputs, plus a new set of inputs. And it's a, it's a whole different ballgame of how we can help plan and help people reach their financial goals. Nathan, I want to wrap this up with some of the two common questions, but I mean, we could continue to talk and I'd love to have you back on uh, and continue to explore and also to see how, you know, our, you know, our listener base and us can continue to help push forward what you are, you know, evangelizing and, and leading. And so the two questions I always ask, I'll start with the first one. Um, you know, we're all constant learners here. We always like to learn. That's why people listen to this podcast. So what is one book that everybody you think should be reading? And it can't be a book that you've written. I don't know if you've written a book yet, but if you have, it can't be your book. <laughs> Self-promotion doesn't work here. <laughs> um, I'll, I, I referenced one a little bit earlier, so I'll say two books. I know that's unfair, but I referenced one earlier, so I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. The Mentor is a fantastic book. It's written by Jim Whidden. That's a book that advisors, they may know some of those EQ skills already, 
but it's a great book to give for graduation or something like that. Another book that I recommend to students, most advisors have read this book, but I think it's just a great beginnings for everyone who's thinking about our industry, Richest Man in Babylon. Love that book. That's such a classic. That's a classic. You can't go wrong with uh, with recommending that book to anybody. So again, I, I always give credit to where credit's due. This last question came from me watching some Barron's conferences and, and they ask all their guests, what's one piece of actionable advice that you can give to the listeners of the podcast that they can start executing on today, tomorrow, and, and moving forward with? Somebody gave me a piece of advice, so I'll just pay it forward. This individual said to consume transgressively and act prudently. So that's actionable in that I encourage you to be progressive in the way in which you think you are going to build your practice. Make an investment in something that maybe you were a little nervous to think through. At least think in terms of consumption progressively of all different thoughts. Act prudently. It's great advice for our clients as well. Gosh, man, that is incredible. I love that advice. It's actionable for whether you're in the profession or you're not, right? I mean, that is just good general advice as well. And it's even more aligned to this industry. Nathan, you've been gracious with your time, man. I really appreciate it. The listeners are really appreciative of it as well. And they would definitely probably like to follow you. So how can they get in touch with you? How can they follow you? How can they stay on top of what you're doing and all the research you're doing and everything on that front? You bet. Just reach out, Google Nathan Harness, and I'm very lucky to not have very many Nathan Harnesses. I'm pretty uh, active on Instagram and on Twitter. You can find me on there. LinkedIn is, if you want to connect to students, connect with me on LinkedIn, just Nathan Harness, Texas A&M, and you'll find me on LinkedIn, and I'll connect you through to students. So hopefully it's a win-win. Nathan, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. And thank you for what you're doing for our profession. Really appreciate it from from everybody that's in the profession today. Thank you. And looking forward to having you back on here soon. It's a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 